Hello and welcome to today's BossCast. I'm Andrew Teacher from Blackstock Consulting and I'm joined by Van Stoltz, who is the founder at Orion Capital Managers. Van, fantastic to see you all the way from Chicago. You've taken the hot air balloon in this morning (laughs) to be ultra sustainable. How is the first quarter of 2022 treating you? Yeah, just in from Chicago 30 years ago. I moved here. (laughs) It was supposed to be for two or three years, and that was 30 years ago, so it's not really hot it. But uh, no, first quarter, I mean, it's great to be all, we're all back in the office 100% all the time, all of us, which is great. So, you know, we're all at Orion, uh, you know, we're sort of work in the office sort of thing. We don't like to live at work. We want to be in. So it's been, and it's very busy. So things are back in track and very busy times. So first quarter, I think is going to be, you know, off to the races. Well, let's start with some of your background growing up in Chicago and coming over here um, some years back and growing Orion. And, and over the years, you've invested in, in more than 15 billion euros of assets. You're one of the leading pan-European private equity real estate businesses. So what were some of your early years and what were some of the milestones that really gave you that leg up in your career? Well, you know, coming from Chicago, I, I used to work at what was LaSalle Investment, LaSalle Partners. And I was just a Chicago boy. Um, you know, I had no international aspirations or anything like that. And the and in 1990, the head of LaSalle, Stuart Scott, said, hey, do you want to move to London to open our first international office? And I'm like, okay, why not? You know, market wasn't that great. So it was just sort of a, it wasn't even a career decision or anything. So I just came over. And fortunately, I realized I didn't know what I was doing at that time in terms of the market. And so my two partners, Bruce Bossom and Arif Lahams, joined me shortly thereafter. And, you know, we built LaSalle's business up to about $5 billion under management. And then LaSalle merged with Jones Lang Wooten in 99. And so that was the sort of thing that we said, well, we done it once as LaSalle, let's do it ourselves. And so it was really the merger of LaSalle with Jones Lang to become JLL, which was perfectly good. Uh, that was the catalyst for us to, to form Orion. And we always had, and still have this aspiration to try and become sort of the leading European real estate private equity group. And that's not like by size or anything, just a place where hopefully, you know, we can perform for investors and where people want to work. And so, mm. uh, and you could kind of uh, control your destiny is the wrong word, but at least kind of control what your house is that you live in is. And so we always wanted to control our culture and how we worked. And so that's been a, yeah. you know, that's been a great thing. So let's dial back to some of those volatile moments. I mean, if coming over in 90, you'd have had the, you know, the, the crash in 92, the early 90s market slump, and then obviously 99, 2000, 2001.com infrastructure bust. So uh, some interesting times that you've been through. How did you manage through those periods of volatility and, and what were some of the things that you brought out of those times that were useful going forwards? Well, I've often been accused of having more perseverance than brains. And so I would, uh, <laughs> you know, I would say perseverance is a lot to be said for that, particularly when you're starting a business. And if you're starting a business, you've got to persevere and you know, it's going to take longer and cost more than you planned. But, you know, I think there are a few key things that, that when you talk about volatility, actually, there were some great opportunities and some volatility comes opportunities. So you always are looking for, you know, what out of this is creates. So 92, 93, the difficulties that made for great investment opportunities. And so we had a lot of good deals after 92, 93. And then the big event, I mean, the beginning of Orion was the euro. And so basically, we were one of the groups that said, all right, we're going to be one of the first pan-European groups with the creation of the euro. And we opened offices in Paris, Milan, Madrid, right from the get-go. And we were very much on the ground in the markets in Europe. And so that's, you know, that sort of local presence capability is, has uh, sort of stood us well, regardless of the volatility. Yeah. Yeah. And, and how has the dynamic of investing across Europe changed 
I suppose, over the last three, four years? And, and what effect also has, has Brexit had on that? You know, Brexit's made some things a little more difficult, like fundraising and all that. And so there's challenges in terms of just how you operate that way. And so it's cost, takes us time and money. But Brexit aside, I think it's not just Europe. I think generally the industry is just getting more operational. And so across Europe and everywhere, whether it's offices, retail for sure, even residential. So I think operational skills, which is sort of one thing we've always sort of stressed in our business. But I think you can't just sort of buy something and I'm going to hire a surveyor and run it and not, you know, that's that. And so across Europe and everywhere, you need to have more and more operational skills. Also, I mean, with interest rates now sort of at their low and maybe moving up a little bit, maybe cap rates have compressed as much as they are, you need to do something, I think, to create return. You can't just say, oh, I'm going to buy some sheds because the cap rate's going to go down. And so I think across Europe and in the UK, you're going to have to sort of do work or do something to create value to get returns. And so that's less, less maybe the three or four years versus kind of where we are now, mm. you know. And what have been some of the other challenges against setting up as a new currency was established and working through, obviously, the, the, the little issue of the GFC? How did you weather that storm having come into it at the turn of the century? I don't know. In a way, it was almost easier than now in that back then, okay, the euro is being created, but I think the rules were, in a way, the structures and things you had to do were clear. We were hiring people on the ground. That was always a challenge to get the right people from the get-go. I think today, the, uh, the amount of people that are available in the industry is deeper. And so it's more competitive, but there's more people that are that are have the skill sets and what you need versus I think yeah. you know twenty something years ago it was less easy to find the people you needed. I think today almost is more challenging. The tax structures are getting more difficult. The governments are, are pursuing our private equity and real estate industries even more. I think the competition's greater, and so in a way it's almost more challenging today. And the skills and expertise you need both from a real estate and from a uh, fiscal tax, all that sort of stuff. Mm. is more even than it was 20 years ago, which doesn't make sense really, but it's gotten almost harder. And what are the conversations that you're having now with capital partners? So what are the things that the LPs are asking now that they weren't asking maybe four or five years ago? Well, there's a couple, I mean, there's a couple of big picture things. First, in that private equity and venture capital have done so well that real estate has to sort of fight a little more to get its allocation. So you could talk to those LPs within their own organization. They're saying, we need to make the case for real estate because look how much private equity has done in venture capital has boomed. And so there's a certain amount of that. And then they're really asking, saying, okay, you've got a couple of big food groups that are sort of not necessarily fully in favor. So retail and then offices, people are not sure. And so that means you've got a huge amount of money sort of funneled into sort of narrow paths. So, you know, mm. sheds and, and residential go crazy. So LPs are sort of saying, well, you know, what's going to happen to these sort of food groups that are certainly out of favor or yeah. sectors or whatever you want to call them? So I think there's a lot of trying to figure out what's going to happen with which was the two sort of major, major recipients of funds over the last, you know, 20 years. And do, do people think that they are, or there is an element at least that they're bidding up the prices of logistics, warehousing, and, and Absolutely. some of these. Absolutely. I mean, how low can the cap rates go? And so, you know, for sure, it's a sector that's viewed as very toppy. Having said that, there's still, you know, a pile of capital going in there because of sort of lack of other choice in sectors and beliefs. So there's yeah. a lot of capital for it. And so it's very difficult to find the value. You know, we're a value investor, so Ryan's a value investor, and so it's difficult to find the value. So definitely saying, oh, maybe this has been overcooked which doesn't mean it goes down or loses money. It just means the returns are low. Mm. Yeah. And in terms of how you're structuring the deals that you're doing, are people now looking much more for specialists? Is, is there a sense that the days of blind pool discretionary funds across Europe 
global funds. Is that the stuff of yesteryear or is there still appetite for that? Okay, it's not binary. So you're right, there is a sort of trend towards specialization. So you have LPs become more sophisticated or they have their portfolios, but they're saying, okay, I've got X, Y, Z, but I, I want sunny side of the street residential because that's what I don't have. And so I'm going to go find the sunny side of the street Milan yeah, yeah. residential guy or whatever. So there's definitely more of that. So the blind pool global thing certainly isn't going to go away. You can see actually what's happened is the money's being concentrated in fewer managers of that kind of and so you know i don't know this you read the statistics 80 percent of the money is going to 10 percent of the managers or whatever you know so there's this definite concentration so but the blind pool people need to show their skill set across and that's why i'm saying those operational capabilities whether they're internal or through key relationships that you have you've got to show you've got the skill set to create value i think that's going to be more important the next few years than the last few where you could you know pile into certain sectors and just make money on cap rate compression. Yeah, yeah. So it's going to be concentrated, so there'll be fewer blind pool, pan whatever, pan European, pan global, whatever. But they're going to have a lot of skills and capabilities and be able to demonstrate how they can move around. Because you know the problem with the sunny side of the street thing or whatever the sector specialization is that's good for a while, but then a year things move faster than before. Capital moves faster. Yeah. So if you say, hey, I, I'm really good at you know. West End London, now we're really specialists there, but West End London becomes super expensive in 18 months, and then what are you going to do? So there's still an advantage to, and, and I'm you know singing my own book here a little bit, but I think there's still an advantage to somebody who says, all right, I can move from this and move to that. Because if you've got like a four-year investment period, it's a long time. Things change dramatically mm. over four years. And so the ability to adjust and say, okay, I like this today, but in 18 months, and to show I have the skill set that I've done that in the past, I can move around, You know, the market will still allocate money to that in my opinion are such investment periods becoming outdated if you want to undertake more operational based investments if you want to undertake things that some would argue me included have just got a longer horizon than four or five years you want to go into a country set up a an operational platform that's doing housing uh, science uh, logistics or whatever that, that's going to take you some time right no i think for sure i mean orion and our and I won't go into a lot of detail, but in our programs, we are providing for the ability to do part of it in longer, longer dated, longer projects. Yeah. And so for sure, you're right. And, you know, there are certain groups that are doing sort of evergreen funds where you can continue to revolve and invest. So I think the investors understand that, the LPs. And so I, I agree with Andrew that there's, you know, will be a portion that can be done in longer deals. The problem is, and you know, you're getting technical, is private equity is a carried interest promote-oriented business which means at some point you have to find a way technically, and I don't want to go too far, to measure and sell and realize because that's what drives private equity. And so you've got to yeah, sort of balance it, but, out but, those but two the, metrics. But the challenge, and this is the same thing I think you see in, in tech as well, is that sometimes these metrics of success sometimes drive suboptimal decision-making. And if you're saying, right, we need to be out in five years, but actually the value is year seven, year eight, then you've screwed yourself. Correct. So you need mechanisms to say, okay, this deal we think the deal is it's right time. It's right time for the asset. It's right time for the market to sell it. So you sell it because of those sort of things. Where you've got the other deals, you say, okay, this actually has a lot of legs, a lot of legs to run. And these are the conversations we have with LPs and say, so we should be able to have a mechanism to continue. And this their benefit too, because the LPs are saying, why sell this now? This thing is still has another, as you just said, X years to run. And so I think the, the structures will evolve and are evolving. They're evolving, and we've done a lot of work on that, that will enable you with those kind of assets to say, why are we selling it at an arbitrary time? 
And so I think you're, you're really correct, and it's evolved, right? There are already more evergreen funds, and we have mechanisms to be able to take some of those because you're 100% right. But now, on the other hand, there may, you got the LP side. So it's not just the GP. I mean, some LPs saying, well, I, I want liquidity. I want it back. I don't want to be around for a long time. And so you're also balancing... So you need to find a way to say, okay, maybe some LPs could exit at a certain point and others have the choice to stay well, just or having a, a menu of yeah. opportunities where some things are in and out quick yeah. and longer term, more ambitious projects. I mean, let's, let's go on to one of those more ambitious projects, Van. And a lot of people in the market will be looking at what you guys are doing with the former BT headquarters in London. Pretty ambitious project in a time where, where people are questioning the future of the office. You're not questioning the future of the office because you're about to almost double the size of it. Right, right. So, I mean, that's being spearheaded by my partner, Arif Laham, so I give him credit on this, you know. But um, first about the office generally before BT, because you, you touched on the future of offices. And, you know, we, we believe strongly that the office market is evolving massively, right? And so by that, there, we believe and are investing in the office of the future, the post-COVID top ESG credential, all green office. And we see That's both- That's so good, but, but let's see. Yeah, yeah, we're going to get to BT. But you can see the occupier demand and the investor demand for those going up. So there's money to be made by doing that. So if you get to BT itself and you say, all right, this is a building that was about 350,000 square feet. BT has just moved out. We got full planning to increase that to 550,000 square feet. We're adding three floors, but we're also shrinking it in on one side to give a better view of St. Paul's. So the trade-off was to give a better view of St. Paul's from the street level, but we're getting some additional floors. And it's going to be a phenomenal building. Of course, I'm biased, but it is a phenomenal building. Cone, Pedersen, Fox design, fantastic. Terraces on almost every floor, top, top level in terms of ESG credentials and sustainability. We're working hard to become a zero carbon building by, I think we're using as much as 70% of the existing materials. So how does that work then in practice? The practice, and again, I'm, I'm not in it day to day to day openly, but what works in practice is that we're reusing materials. And so rather than taking those materials and taking them to the dump, those materials are being reused to reconstitute for the new construction, including even things like window frames, where those window frames might be taken off site and recut and yeah. reshaped and added. So there's a lot of reuse of materials. And, 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 that, and this is something we were talking about with Janine Cole from GPE, Great Portland Estates, last year regarding one of their projects. And Janine noted the fact that they were doing similar approaches in terms of reusing some of the glazing, but this right. wasn't recognized in the EPCs that they were being given or the grading of the EPCs. Right. Are you being asked by your investors to report on this level of detail? So when all these things we're talking about, they're going to obviously reduce, well, not reduce, but they're going to reduce the increase of embodied carbon if you're using less stuff. Yeah, I mean, the, the reporting is evolving and it ranges quite a bit. Of course, you know, you get sort of the Dutch investors, which would be at the top level in terms of ESG reporting, but also you're finding the uh, government funds increasingly. So, mm. But it's going to be across the board. So yes, the reporting is increasing quite a bit. You know, we're doing a lot in Orion internally in terms so of- So what, what, what things? Again, specifics, please. What well, first there's you your energy consumption in buildings. And so you have to have a consultant in terms of your energy consumption. And then- we're not yet at where they're going to say, okay, in terms of where are you in terms of your carbon on existing buildings, but certainly energy consumption across your portfolio and where you are on that. So yeah, this is increasing quite a bit. And I think it's a great thing. I think it's fantastic. Also, you know, if you look at LPs, I was talking to Sovereign Fund the other day, they no longer are cutting their portfolio by just sector and geography. They're going to say, all right, what is our sort of ESG rating across our portfolio? And we need to have at least pick a number, 65, 70% of those buildings need to be of a So they will be culling 
old buildings. So you expect your LPs or investors in the future to start culling buildings that don't meet their standards. Yeah. And they're going to say, we're only going to invest in buildings going forward that are have certain metrics. Now, the metrics keep evolving, whether it's well-fit or whether it's a lead or, you know, these things keep evolving. Mm. Yeah, I mean, arguably, some would say you, you, you're better investing in the companies that do the certificates rather than the people that build the buildings. <laughs> yeah, they probably, probably make more money. Probably, um, right. Unless they're <laughs> Yeah, but they go away. So it could be the certificate of today is not the certificate of tomorrow. So well, I'm not sure that well, one. Well, exactly. Yeah, you need I a don't. fund of certificates. You need well, regular listeners to this podcast will know that I'm you slightly need a diversification on, on some of, of these certificates. certificates. You know. but, I mean, but, I, but the BT I, building is super exciting. It's going to be fantastic. I, so, I mean, just so in terms of, you've answered some of the things that people are having to do differently from a reporting perspective what are the things you're doing differently in terms of how you're designing and and building the project so what are you doing with this building you might not have done 30 years ago well first of all i mean part of it it's a combination of what you're doing for both esg but also for tenant usage and demand and what brings people back in the office so it's two things right so it's not just you're not just doing things for esg you're really doing things to say what does the occupier of the future want so they so want yoga rooms rather than smoking rooms. we have an extremely large gym fitness operator is there in a the building. cigar room you could smoke on almost every floor because there will be outside terraces on every floor. You can smoke whatever you want. <laughs> <laughs> so don't have your cigar, whatever is legal. And, and a phenomenal roof garden will have a 25-meter pool in the basement, huge number of bicycle spaces. So there will be public domain space on the roof, so there will be a restaurant yeah, access by one the public. Of the, the this has been one of the slightly... Uh sensitive topics in London is public access yeah. to these buildings. No, I think it's, for us, in that location, I mean, you're really part of what the city's calling the cultural mile, right? Running from the Tate, yeah, all yeah, the Museum yeah. of London. So I think it's fantastic. So the building, now the other thing we're working is to see if we can get the street just west of the building, just pedestrianized. And so the idea is, you know, it's a place making in a building versus just offices. And so that the employees say, fantastic, I want to come, look, there's restaurants, there's the gym, I can bicycle and easily park, I've got a pool, I've got terraces in every floor, I can go to the roof garden. So I, you know, for overall, these things... There was no building, not even done like that five years ago. Yeah, I mean, it's, that's the thing. I mean, you go around there, I mean, one, one new change and, and, and developments like that, a little bit stayed, aren't they? They're quite... Well, I mean, they were... They, they did well in their time. I mean, it still has the roof. I mean, you go up to the top of one new change, it's still nice. Oh, yeah. yeah. So, so Taylor Wessing's still there. Uh, yeah, I think so. Yeah, they always used to shout out to Taylor Wessing. Yeah. They, they always but used I mean, to, if you go to the restaurants uh, on the top. Yeah, and, uh, they always used to give me their roof terrace from, from my annual party that I held when I was yeah. at the BPF. But there's they, the two restaurants on the top, the view of St. Paul's or anything. I mean, it's, yeah, uh, it's okay. Architecturally, it's nothing to write home Well, about, that's but, personal taste. I mean, Jean Nouvel, whether you like Jean Nouvel or don't like Jean Nouvel, I mean, you, yeah. do you think it's a brown turd or do you think it's nice looking? Yeah, well, he's welcome to come to this podcast and defend the building Let, let's move on let's let's just change tack a little bit so talk about spain van um mm. you, you guys have always had a big presence in spain spain actually again, not always but okay no uh, but okay um, all right but, go but, ahead. but some some people would say spain is a box of frogs uh, <laughs> um, actually we, we opened our office in spain in 2009 so when you're talking about crises and everything when after the great financial crisis spain was devastated remember it was probably the most devastated market I mean, spain of a not in crisis remember it was it was had like 20% of his GDP was housing construction, so it was devastated from the crisis. And that's when we opened our office because this is a good time to yeah. you know to start hunting. And we've consistently made money in Spain. are very uh, enthusiastic. Madrid's a fantastic city. 
uh, and the country, the people are very uh, productive. So I don't know about the box of frogs things at all. I think it's, it's a great country and we've done well there. And so in Spain, our biggest position today is we, we own just under 30% of the shares of a company called Nainor Home. It's a listed company. It is sort of the leading sort of residential build-to-sale developer. They create workforce sort of apartments, sort of 1,000 square feet each, sell around 330,000 on average. Last year, uh, you know, even through COVID, we met our guidance as a company and built and sold, delivered 2,800 apartments. The margins are holding still very well, around 23%. Hmm. And importantly... And I'm a huge believer of this, and we've been driving, we're creating something called Nano Rental, and so we're creating a uh, rental platform, BTR. Uh, we currently have about 5,000 units under construction. So this would be the, in Spain for rent market. For rent market in Spain. And so the idea is Nanor will become sort of the leading build-to-rent and rental operator platform in Spain. So an integrated developer. It's really, the idea is it's no longer just a build-to-sell company, it's an integrated residential company. Yeah. And so this will be, you know, mar- operating across... And we're also uh, just won a competition, a joint venture, to do a joint venture with the city of Barcelona to create more affordable housing in Barcelona of about 2,000 units. Uh, oh, so Nainer is using its skill set yeah. that they've got the capability to create the product. And uh, so we're branching that out. So we're quite enthusiastic about it. Yeah. No, and it goes well. And how does that sort of interest align with some of your historic interests in, in malls, shopping centers? Well, it's what I just talked about in, in terms of how opportunities shift. Yeah. And so what's your ability to say, okay, the opportunity is here, the opportunity is there, and how can I capitalize and run it? And have I done that in the past or in our capabilities? So, you know, when we did the malls, that was in 2011 or 12, that was a huge opportunity. We sold those and we made a lot of money selling, you know, when we had Porta Venezia and Plenty Lunio. And now today, you know, would you buy major shopping centers? I don't know at what price, you know, there will be survivors and money to be made. But that's something at the moment where it's hard to say, I'm going to deploy capital mm. in that sector. But companies like Hammerson are looking, aren't they, at, at quite extensive repurposing, changing uses of, of, of elements of their shopping malls, building loads of rented apartments. That's something that, that Hammerson are doing reportedly with right. package living. And I mean, as someone that's owned lots of shopping centers, how workable is that? Is this sort of assumption that you can just, oh, we'll change the use, we'll build a bunch of houses and it will be fine. How, how realistic <laughs> is that? Uh, it's when you talked about these longer term things and the projects that take X number of years. We talked about that before. So I think there's a real business here and money to be made. Uh, but and there's guess, a matter of as degree. You say, it depends on what price. Yeah, and time. Yeah. So it's a matter of degree. I mean, at Telford, we have almost 50 acres in Telford. And so we're working, and I think there is real opportunity to add to that site. So it's not repurposing the site. Yeah. The shopping this is, center this is a mall that you own in Telford. Right? Correct. Yeah. And so the mall does well. We've got 13, 14 million visitors a year. And so it's not about repurposing. It's about, I've got this site, which is a good location. What else can I put on it to create additional value? And I think that's one thing, which is very different than you take like Maidenhead or something where Maidenhead uh, Nicholson's or something was called, which we didn't do it, but we looked at it. Now that's where in the city center, that's just going to be shut down. And so you just shut down the shopping center and say, I'm going to build resi and senior housing and everything, you know, in the center of Maidenhead, which is a great city with Crossrail coming in. So that has nothing to do with retail. That's a, you know, city center repurposing mixed use development, you know, and that's going to take, you got to do the planning, you got to thing all the time. And so that's one of your things that that could be a, I don't know, seven or eight year project, right? And that goes through various phases. Maybe this company's coming in now, which they get the planning and redo that, and maybe they sell it on then again to the next guy who's the developer once the planning's in place and all that. I think there's real money to be made in that, and that's a real business. So when you talk about repurposing retail, there's a whole spectrum of what you're talking about. Or maybe you're just cutting off part of something and 
you know, ours that we have, fortunately, our, our ones in the UK, for example, are city center. So we still have the footfall. We have the people and the retail is sustainable and surviving and doing re- reasonably well. So there it's about adding value versus I'm repurposing. Yeah, yeah. And then and one of the other exciting projects that you've got on, on the um, on the board at the minute is Newtown Quarter in Edinburgh. Right. Um, and that, that again, that's going to have a, a mix of, of residential in it as well, isn't it? Correct. I mean, there's talk about adjusting. It was going to be residential, hotel, and office. And then when COVID hit... You decided just to make it all one big whiskey tasting emporium. <laughs> one big whiskey tasting, take over leaf. So anyway, we weren't sure about the hotel thing. And the hotel operator we had sort of went wrong, you know, just sort of obviously couldn't make decisions. And so we decided to go with build to rent resi, build to sell resi, and office. And, um, you know, it's a great design. It's just we got the planning uh, we will start construction. We're just putting those packages together now. And, um, you know, we, with the the nice thing about doing build to sell and build to rent on a similar site is these days with the capital demand for build to rent, you can pre-sell that. We're in discussions with a few potential funders to forward fund pre-sell the build to rent, which if you make some margin then, that lowers so your basis in the build to sell. Yeah. And so you're able to go forward and things to be fantastic. It's be, yeah. Be, I mean, really, you, I'm uh, sure you, you won't have any problem getting that away. That's a great site. But, you know, these things like anything... You know, we're doing a great project, but as you know, you can never, you never put enough time in it for planning. So even though the planners are generally supportive, just the timing and process to get planning is always longer than you think. And there's mm. always the, and it's, so it's not anything negative. I don't say anything wrong. It's just, you know, these mixed use, complicated projects in city centers just take a lot of time and planning, understandably, given what you're doing right in the heart of people's cities. Yeah. So we're on track there in terms of the timing and everything. COVID slowed it a little bit just because people aren't working on it, but it's an exciting project. We're thrilled mm. with it. So yeah. I mean, let's talk about some of the other emerging issues in the market. How are you as a business, you know, it's a relatively old school business, and I don't mean that in a derogatory way at all, but uh, in the sense I don't know, that, we'll see. Well, I, well I, no, I don't. I'm, but, I, but the fact is, the business has been around for a few decades, and you've been through lots of cycles and stuff. Right, no, that's Stuff true. has changed. That's, that's, that's what true. I mean. It's a factual yeah, yeah, no, statement. Yeah, yeah, no, So, sure. so, so we've been talking about the- Well, I've been, I mean, another expression versus old school, but I, everything you said was true. I just need another moniker. Yeah. No, it's so, fine. No, it's, okay, uh, it's no, fine. Don't, don't, it's don't, fine. don't be oversensitive. It's fine. No, I'm not. Um, but, but I, I, but we, <laughs> we've, we've I'm talked, way too old to be sensitive. <laughs> <laughs> we've talked about how- We've talked about how the markets have evolved. We've talked about how appetites of investors have evolved. And, and, and we've talked a little bit about how, how Occupy tastes have evolved. I, I want to talk about how people within the city, within real estate have evolved and how you as a business, how you've evolved as well and, and, right. and the outlook that you now have on things and how you as a business owner, as an entrepreneur, how are you as an entrepreneur looking at the world differently to how you did in 1990 when you started up the business? So what are the things that you're thinking about now that, that just simply weren't on the table 30 years ago? Yeah, I mean, there's two or three things. Things, if we talk about move faster, so trends move faster. As soon as you have an idea, everybody has the same idea. So I'm talking about sort of situations and then how, how do you deal with them going forward in terms of a business. It's number one. Two, these things, and I always I never say whether things are good or bad or normal, not normally. You just sort of say, okay, these are conditions or trends, and then sort of what do you try to do to capitalize on them? Yeah. Right? So the second one is clearly, and part of that with things moving faster is technology, but technology also just into how it, it enters into all the workplace and what things is it clearly 20 years ago, 
you know, we're in a completely different world. We didn't even have smartphones and all this sort of thing. Mm. So technology. Third is competition. And so the world becomes increasingly transparent, increasingly competitive. That's part of the first one in terms of moving faster. It's not only faster, there's more But is that, is that an inhibitor to a business like Orion where, again, your, your USP and and your you know your secret source is is your knowledge your contacts your uh, your experience your expertise and if big data has shoved all that onto the internet how- yeah I mean, it was funny you saying inhibitor one of the good things I mean I still say to young people I think real estate is a great industry and I think it's where the people can still do extremely well where I think the human factor is still extremely important mm. I don't think it's not uberized or disintermediated or artificially intelligenced away people or anything. People are trying. Things. Are trying. Sure, they're trying, they're, but there's going to be tools still. At the end of the day, this is what, you know, my, I'm a firm, strong believer that, you know, design, architecture, what the humans want. Maybe you say you can AI that because you get all their data points and then you just plug them in and you do it and you don't have to have any sort of creative juice in it. But I don't believe that at all. So you don't, so you don't, you don't see a fear that private equity real estate is going to get swallowed up by the metaverse? No. I don't think it, I don't see it at all. Brilliant. There's the yeah, headline. I don't that's see great. It at all. That's, that's, yeah, that's, that's no, what I, I wanted. I, I don't. <laughs> now, maybe because, you know, I don't know if that's just a delusional belief or well, what. So, I mean, it's, but it's, I believe it. No, I do believe it. I, I'm being a little I, bit I tabloid, a little yeah, bit. Yeah. I, I'm poking you a little bit, but I'm not. I'm, only, I'm being semi serious because, again, if you think about the points you mentioned around design and. Uh, yeah, but if you look at if you look at the whole thing, if you say today, which I think over the next few years, I don't know, twenty years, the next few years, I think you're going to have to do more to create value to get returns and, and things. You, you know, just buy, and so yeah. you need skill sets and come to the table. And those skill sets, what we just talked about, whether that's planning, design, leasing, refurbishing, these still are heavy, heavy human coming. And I don't see that changing an AI away for the next 5, 15, 20 years. So how now, does- the ability to analyze data, the ability to make decisions, the tools you get. And then if you look at the construction industry, I mean, architectures move far, but the construction industry is still way behind in terms of technology coming in and yes. being advanced and what's happening in terms of it. So I still think managing that process. I mean, the meetings this morning on trying to negotiate the, and control we didn't talk about inflation and construction costs, but you can't AI a negotiation with a contractor to get the cost down in no. terms of budget when you're in an inflationary period. I'm telling you, this is not an AI. But you can invest in, in emerging and in innovative forms of construction. This is something sure. that we discussed uh, a month or so back with the boss of Semex Ventures, the venture arm of Semex, one of the world's uh, biggest yeah. concrete conglomerates. Right, yeah. and, and, and they've Out got all sorts region. of cool things that they're right. doing. I mean, thinking again about some of the focus on humans that we talked about, earlier on how are you viewing them all go away they're like no humans anymore (laughs) (laughs) human-centric design not about your business how are you thinking about diversity inclusion and reflecting the communities that you're serving where for example you're building worker housing in spain you're in the city center in edinburgh you're in places like telford how are you trying to create more of a workforce within orion that can reflect that and what you know what are you doing with some for example with your role at ULI to, to help shift the real estate sector forwards. I went to um, a gathering in, in uh, Switzerland recent of, of uh, I won't mention the organization because we're going to talk about ULI, but where there were, I think, 70 or 80 people there, leaders in the industry. There was one female at that gathering. I thought it was shocking, right? Absolutely shocking. So an industry that's still sort of male-dominated and also, uh, you know, we won't talk about other aspects of the socioeconomic strata that are in the industry, I think we have to do a lot to attract and diversify and bring others in. So I personally, as well as Orion, uh, I, you know, I sort of volunteered, elected or whatever to chair what's called the Urban Plan here in the UK. And the Urban Plan, is, as you well know, is a program that brings sort of 
real estate sessions into schools across the UK. It's currently reached over 4,000 students, focusing more on disadvantaged areas. But the idea is that if we go early in people's education and introduce the idea of real estate careers to those people and then try and link them into apprenticeships, that's the other thing that Urban Plan the Urban Plan is a great program because we have reached over 4,000 students. We are bringing mm. it into these schools in disadvantaged areas. And it's a charitable program. It's a charity. Isn't Correct. It? Yeah. Well, it's run at ULI. It's charity. So, yeah. right, it needs funders. And so... Um, and who, are, who are some of the other people funding it as well? Well, as we currently guys? have... I mean, we're fortunate to have people like Land Securities, uh, Grosvenor. Uh, we've got Tristan Capital. We've got uh, Legal in General. Uh, so leaders in the industry, Savills is so also some big coming. names and some and big so, names. So, so lots of people and, and Orion capital managers. Yeah, yeah. I should have mentioned. Uh, some big names have been supporting it. So, and those names now are enough to enable us to reach out to over 40 schools this year. And those are run at about 5,000 pounds. So what does that mean? School. So you say reaching schools, what, what does that actually mean? Are you just handing out dinners? Or what, what are you, what are you doing at the school? Lunches, just lunches, lunches. just lunches. <laughs> They're not there for dinner. <laughs> so, so no, there's, it's run by Everfy. There's this group Everfy that comes in and runs a real estate session for two to three days where teams in the schools compete. It's a fantastic program. The teams compete to sort of create a, here's your town, here's your planning challenge like what we're doing at Newtown Court or whatever. You've got to redo the city center and you compete to create the plan and the economics around that plan. And then you present it and compete. And then the winning team is the one that, and they have to present that plan too. And as you would to a, a municipality or council. And so that introduces students to a whole wide range of not only real estate, but how to present and how to com- prepare a thing. And so it's fantastic. The response from teachers and students is like 98, 90% positive responses. And it introduces them to the industry. Now what we're trying to do is then take those sessions from the schools, and then link them into the sponsors, particularly potentially having apprenticeships. Mm. It's also super for the sponsors, frankly, from a commercial standpoint, because they can maybe sponsor schools in areas where they are doing work. And so it's a way in that community to show their involvement and how they are socially sort of connecting with mm. those communities. And I think where this, that, that's, that's a really good point because I think that the problem, you, know, you talk about the challenges of planning. And I think one of the challenges that a lot of investors and developers simply don't recognize either through myopia or through having the wrong kind of consultants is they just don't really think about that connection. They don't think about the human connection with people. And, and you know, they're, well, too they, bu- well, they're too busy looking at spreadsheets and they don't think actually... Maybe if I go and sat in the local pub or sat in the local leisure centre right. and talk to people, I'd maybe have a slightly different thought about this, about how to solve this problem. I think the industry's evolved a lot. I mean, I think the developers... Oh, definitely. It's come a long way, but there's a long way to go. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's why you need and, and to do... Programs that's like why, this, programs like this are fantastic. Yeah, but because also, you're, you're, I've got the perspective of... And I, I agree with you. It's got a long way to go. And it's good we push on it. And so for sure, there's a long way to go, both in terms of... The, a huge long way to go in terms of diversity. And so there we're still way behind, I think way behind under the industries if you look at statistics. And, and mm. so the industry definitely needs to reach out and do more to bring a, a, a diversity into the industry and attract not only – part of the problem is, you know, we're, when we're hiring, we don't – the candidates aren't there. So we have to reach out, as I say, into these schools and bring people into the industry because a lot mm. of times the diversity of candidates just isn't there as much as you want to get there. And in terms of developments and in the communities, for sure – you need to feel about more connection with that community. And if, if through like urban plan, you can say, look, I'm not just developing, I'm creating the pathway for young students or people in this community, particularly if they're disadvantaged, mm. to really maybe have apprenticeships with you and get into the industry. And so I'm not just about, you know, trying to milk the cow. 
and uh, run off and go come out the next one. I'm really doing something. But that's the thing. But but smart smart business leaders will realize that diversity is actually good for their bottom line. It's great for the industry. But the challenge openly is if you know Orion, you know we're around 45 people. We'd like to be more diversified. We're working on it. But it's you know the good news is people don't leave our company, and so it's it's you've got to create that diversity by somehow growth. So I think it's a challenge for smaller firms, you know, despite their best intentions, versus larger firms. So what, and what you know, people- and I don't think I don't think we should get a pass. I'm not saying we should get a hmm. buy. We should get a pass. But you know, it's it's uh, it's something that takes real effort and focus. So people that want to get involved with Urban Plan, what should they do? Can they contact you? Sure, absolutely for Urban Plan. They can contact me or Jackie Collins at ULI, but to contact me for sure. For Urban Plan, you know, there's a lot of ways to get involved. One, obviously, is always need sponsorship and money. And so, you know, again, you put, they ask people to do is sponsor at least three schools, like 15,000. Mm. Uh, that's number one. And so, you know, you can only drive the car if it's got fuel in the in the tank. Second is the uh, Urban Plan needs volunteers. So it's great because your younger people in your organization could do these sessions. So the sessions are not just all run by professionals. The thing always needs volunteers. So I think it's great. You can not only become a sponsor of ULI, you could say, okay, some of your young, younger people, associates or whatever, or mid-level people, or anybody, even these senior people, go and, and run these sessions and be involved. And uh, we're also creating a thing where people can also do the sessions in now organizations, kind of a scale down for your team. So I think it's also a great team thing within organizations. So I think mm. for you get involved in ULI, but yeah, definitely give me a, definitely give me a call, give me an email, give me a whatever, mm. and uh, we'll plug you in. Well, that's already useful. So, I, as you know, I'm enthu- how enthusiastic I am about it. It's no, absolutely, really, uh, absolutely. So it's I think a, it's, it's definitely program. something that the that more people yeah. in the and marketplace. It's been going for seven years. It's it's proven a success. Hugely qualified. It's also now able to be delivered digitally as well as uh, so. You know, one of the benefits of COVID is it pushed people to be able to do things digitally as well as in person. So, you know, that leads us enables us to reach more people and sort of adapt. And so, also sponsors can sometimes join sessions, not necessarily in person, but digitally, which makes it easier for more people yeah. to, to get involved. So uh, yeah. finishing off, Van, what are the next few years look like for you? Are you, are you going to be rolling back? Are you going to be hanging <laughs> up your gloves? You've spent lockdown having a load of grandkids. Uh, yeah, um, that's true. So well, my number two said had two sets of twins within 20 months. So it was a very productive COVID. You know, I don't know if that's clever, but it's productive. You, you, you won't really understand it. Until, I know you're having your first here in a month or so. You, you're, you, I know you're, you're kind of thinking about it, but you don't really get it until now when you, when you have your first. It's a boy, I understand. Uh, right? No, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, right. I mean, it's, it's still a little so bit congrats. abstract to me. I mean, I yeah, think, no, now we'll have talk again after and I'll tell you, tell you again about the double sets of twins. And then, and then you're gonna, I mean, what I keep go, saying oh to God. people is that, is that I'm, I'm used to wiping bums and feeding people because I've been running a business <laughs> for nine years. Uh, you've been doing it for slightly longer. It's been a long time. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not only doing my children, the grandchildren as well. So, you know, I love our business and I, I still, you know, unfortunately feel great, a lot of energy. And I, it's, it's frankly coming out of COVID, I think the business is need more attention than ever. You know, things are evolving faster in how we do things. And we, we and so it's, it's, you know, they've called it the great accelerator and it's true, right? And so that even motivates me more to say, are we doing and pushing the directions? And so one is increased operational skills that I talked about. So as a business, and so you don't have to be a specialist, but you need to have areas where I know I can access and we can access operational skills. And so I think our business needs to continue to have those, whether it's internally or through connections. And so the next few years will be spent enhancing those operational skills. That also fits where we are in terms of the economic cycle with interest rates moving up a little bit and cap rate compression. I think the day is of making money just by beta cap rate compression is sort of over. So one is the operational skills. Two, as a competition for talent, 
I think is going to grow more and more. I mean, we're seeing it already. I mean, we're seeing already salary escalation in young people, uh, you know, driven a lot by the investment banks and the others. But uh, and it's just not about money. So we have to, in part, obviously, as a leader, your role is to nurture young people, the people in your organization, make sure they love working there and it's a great place. So for sure, over the next two or three years, I will continue more than ever, kind of whatever, whatever you want to call the nurturing <laughs> process, attracting, nurturing, retaining, you know, the talent. That we have. I mean, we've been very fortunate, Ryan, over the years that our average tenure is like 12, 15 years and the seniors over 15 years. And so that's due to a lot of cultural things. And that, that culture comes from the top, of course. So mm. those are the main things. And then the ESG we talked about. I mean, we're doing a lot as an organization. And I think that's fantastic. I think it's uh, a real positive, you know, I think. Uh, yeah. And we got a hell of a long way to go, as you said. So, so well, I'm uh, still full on. Yeah. Well, that's great to hear. That's great. Yeah, so, well, look, so let, let's leave it there. This but the young people got to know that they're going to come into it as well. So I'm not, you know, I'm not, we're, I'm, I'm, an, I'm a door opener, not a block eye. Well, absolutely. Absolutely. So, so feel free, Van Stoltz from Orion Capital Managers, feel free to get in touch with Van uh, for more info on, on Urban Plan and engaging with schools. Some fantastic conversation. Great to hear about the uh, the BT project, the work in Scotland. BT is and, and, nice. uh, building's going to be awesome. Uh, and, and everything awesome. across Spain. Um, fantastic, Van. Always, always a pleasure to Yeah, likewise. You. You know, you know, um, you never lack for uh, liveliness, opinions, or direction. So, you know, which we wouldn't want it any other way. Well, so, thank you very much right. for coming in. Um, yeah, thank you, uh, thank you, everyone, for listening. You can subscribe to Propcast by going to Apple, uh, Spotify, uh, if it's still in existence by the time this podcast is broadcast, uh, SoundCloud, and keep tuned to PropertyWeek.com for the latest news and analysis. I have been Andrew Teacher at Blackstock Consulting. Thank you very much for listening, and you can catch up on previous Bosscast episodes online, and we'll see you again very soon. 